Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Alexander Nicholas about her book, Phoebe Apperson Hurst, A Life of Power in Politics. Alexander, welcome to New Books Network. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Ooh, something about myself. Okay, well, um, this this project has taken up most of my <laughs> adult life. I, I started this project uh, as my dissertation many years ago at the University of California at Davis, and then I turned it into a book. And uh, by the time I got finished, it's taken me about 35 years to complete. So uh, it's been a commanding aspect of my life for quite a while. And I, I, when I first started this project, I thought, oh, my goodness, is, do I really want to spend a lot of time on uh, devoting uh, my effort to somebody who had a lot of money. And as it turns out, this project has been very interesting. Uh, after all these years, I'm, I'm yet to be bored by Phoebe Epperson Hurst. <laughs> well, it definitely comes across in your book. She led such a fascinating life. She did. She had her fingers in many, many different pots and activities. What drew you to her in the first place? Uh, actually, it was practical considerations. I was working full time, um, teaching five classes, and I didn't have a lot of money. And so I needed a, a research project that I could uh, do close by that didn't require extensive travel somewhere else. And a, a colleague of mine suggested that I look at the George and Phoebe uh, Hearst papers at the University of uh, California, Bancroft Library. You did research in, this, uh, in these papers, and as you said, you wrote a dissertation and you went on to uh, write this book. And yet it's more than just a straightforward account of her life and her times. As you explained, you, Phoebe Apperson Hearst has something to tell us about women in 19th, early 20th century America that we sometimes overlook. Yes, very true. Um, I think probably the most important general permanent legacy that she has to offer us is to teach us about how uh, she acquired and controlled and used uh, money and her other resources to bring her power. Um, You know, power isn't money in itself, which is often a cliche, money is power, but it's uh, something that you need to have the ability to achieve and for, for Phoebe Apperson Hearst, in her case, uh, she was very intelligent and she used her own uh, personal informal and her personal skills, among other skills that she had, to really advance her, herself or a career for herself. And um, that path that she took eventually brought her power in a number of different ways. That was one of the things I found really fascinating when I read the book, because we, when we think of, of power in, in, in the uh, realms where she exercised it, it's typically, it's typically the realm of men. It's, it's politics, it's, it's, it's policy, it's public life. And that was reflected in her husband, who was a United States senator. That was reflected much more famously with her son, who went on to become a congressman, a newspaper publisher of, 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 of great renown and, 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 and fame or infamy, depending upon your point of view. And and how and and so their their story and their power is well known, and yet as you explain, she was just as influential, even without having to, even without serving an elective office, even without, as you explain, you know, having the power to vote for most of her life. Yes, I think most people have have heard of the hearse, and as you 
pointed out here, William Randolph Hearst has received, her son has received a lot more attention. Uh, some people are familiar with the Phoebe Hearst name, but they really don't know much about her. So this book really does uh, lay out um, um, many of the important aspects of her life. And she was uh, unusual in a number of different ways. Most people uh, think that um, the only kind of power that women, particular in this time period, could acquire was was by voting. And uh, people think about um, uh, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which granted women uh, the constitutional right to vote. But there were millions of women involved in just thousands of voluntary associations in the United States, and they had the right to vote. Uh, And there were other instances across the nation where women uh, had the right to vote. For example, in California, Uh, In 1874, there was a law that actually said that women could hold uh, public educational offices. Uh, And so here in San Francisco, for example, they actually ran in in school board elections, uh, even though women couldn't vote uh, in those elections at the time. So it's sort of fascinating to see the different political aspects in in which Phoebe Hearst was involved. Another part of the uh, her life that's so fascinating is the journey that brought her to that point. Because as you explained, she was not a person born of wealth, born of status, but she was a person who, you know, grew up in some uh, pretty challenging circumstances. Yes. Um, practically all women during this period had to contend with and grapple with um, constraints of sex and class that were placed upon them. So anyone who was ambitious, like Phoebe Hurst, uh, and there were a number of ambitious women in the 19th and early 20th century, they had to figure out ways to navigate uh, the corridors of power, ways to, within the constraints of sex and class, Uh, acquire power, which was a challenge uh, uh, for many women. And in Phoebe's case, she had um, virtually no role models to follow. Um, When she came out to San Francisco in 1862, uh, shortly after she married George Hurst, uh, and she was 22 years younger than George Hurst, which many people don't know, she was uh, in a situation where she didn't know anybody uh, where uh, only approximately 30% of the San Francisco population was female at the time. And after William Randolph Hearst was born, George got up and left uh, to go off and engage himself in his pursuits and personal interests. He loved the world of mining. And that left Phoebe Hearst alone, pretty much, uh, with the exception of a governess um, that was there um, to help her raise Willie. And she was very lonely, dissatisfied in her marriage, uh, unhappy. And so she had to try and figure out what she was going to do to turn herself into a self-made woman, which is how her parents raised her to be very ambitious and eventually um, self-supporting and get, get involved in useful work. So that meant that she had to develop abilities, skills, um, really to bring herself down the road uh, to acquiring the necessary uh, resources in order to bring herself power. So she had virtually no one to talk to about this. And there were very few role models at the time. Um, She didn't have any contact with those that existed across the country. So it was a challenging endeavor for her, as well as other women who uh, became uh, powerful during this period. As you explained, she uh, 
gains, you know, she enters this life of wealth through her marriage to George. And yet, as you explain as well, that, you know, that wealth was not necessarily stable as well. So she has that, I was struck by, on the one hand, you know, she's living in the most opulent hotel in, in San Francisco. She, 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 as you point out, she, she has a governess uh, that she can uh, call upon. And, and, and yet at the same time, it was not necessarily stable and, 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 and secure that uh, for her to, to, to just assume that that wealth was always going to be there. Yes, that's that's an interesting point, because um, Phoebe Hurst, like uh, George Hurst, actually, they both had dreams about coming to California. In George's case, he had dreams about coming to California and making a fortune, uh, which he, he came out to California originally in, in 1850. But Phoebe uh, had her dreams as well about California. She Early in life, she had dreams about going to California, uh, living in a house, uh, with her husband and hopefully six kids. She wanted six children and she wanted a stable family unit. And um, then once that happened, she wanted to get involved in California life, to be active in California life. But as soon as George and Phoebe arrived in, in San Francisco um, in 1862, the fall of 1862, George uh, shattered that dream of Phoebe almost immediately when he um, said they were going to li- live in the Lick Hotel. And the Lick Hotel was the most uh, luxurious hotel in San Francisco at the time. But Phoebe Hearst did not like it. It was too pretentious for her. So George wanted to make her happy. So they moved to a smaller, uh, family-oriented, quieter hotel, the Stevenson Hotel. And that is where William Randolph Hearst was born, the Hearst one and only child in April of 1863. So in that in that environment in San Francisco at the time, as you point out, it was really a topsy-turvy place, very unstable. And Phoebe didn't, uh, as I mentioned, know anybody. So um, it was an anxiety-producing situation for her, actually, initially. And <laughs> <laughs> yet she seemed to rise to the challenge. And I was thinking about it, not just in terms of the life that you described that she lives early on in her marriage, where she's, you know, in effect running the household while her husband is gone. But you also describe how, as they go on in the marriage, how the the, the travel she undertakes. And it's something that nowadays we think about as, as no big deal that, you know, you simply book a ticket, get on a plane. But she's undertaking these journeys of many months. She, she's doing it without her husband. It, it, I, I was just fascinated by what that must say about her. Oh, yes. I, I think... Um... After William Randolph Hearst was born, uh, George Hearst, as I mentioned, got up and left, which left Phoebe by herself. And uh, she's really lonely and she really misses George. So uh, early on, she decides, well, since George is not going to come to her, she will go to him. <laughs> and that really starts her on her travel adventures. Um Uh, Once she travels to visit George, she's very glad to see him, uh, and she really doesn't want to leave him, but she has to go back home because he's involved with his mining and business pursuits, and then eventually political pursuits and interests. Uh, But then in 1872, George suggests that um, Phoebe and Willie go off to Europe, and he meet them over there to attend the Vienna International Exposition. And this is really going to be the first major trip that uh, Phoebe Apperson Hearst takes to Europe. And this is going to be a transforming experience for her. Um, Throughout her life, she 
uh, goes to Europe many times, and each time she learns something new. And these trips, beginning in 1873, um, allow her to transform herself into a woman who can fulfill the duties and responsibilities that Americans expected of women married to wealthy men. And it also gives her an opportunity to develop a separate and independent identity from George. So since George is gone a lot of the time, Phoebe has a bit of freedom that most married women don't have. Uh, she, uh, When she gets to Europe in this first trip in 1873, she is... Um, allowed as a result of this experience to begin to learn how to handle money outside of household finances. She acquires uh, new knowledge about um, the, uh, different people and races and cultures in the various countries that she visits. She comes face to face for the first time in her life with real poverty in Ireland. Uh, and that starts her thinking about uh, money and what she can do with George's money. Early on in their marriage, George Hurst hands over to Phoebe control of a large part of his fortune because he knows his wife is unhappy uh, because she's lonely and disillusioned with their marriage because he is not around. So these European journeys and adventures are really transforming experiences for her and very important to her. She absolutely loved travel. It was a, a deeply um, interesting experience to her and really important in shaping her as an individual and human being. How do those experiences, uh, how are those experiences reflected in her activism when she goes back to California? Do they determine what she focuses on in terms of specific movements? Does she bring in ideas that simply were not there in California before she introduced them? In what way does it, does it uh, you know, define the activism in her home, in her own community. Yes, both in both instances. Um, at the time that she begins her travels to Europe, it's beginning to be expected that uh, women married to wealthy men in San Francisco and and elsewhere as well um, should get involved in voluntary associations and their politics. In other words, if you're going to fulfill the uh, duties and obligations of a woman married to a wealthy man, Mer Americans expected wealthy women to get involved in these organizations. So um, what Phoebe Hearst does really on, on these trips is that these trips to Europe allow her to gather the knowledge uh, and ideas and experiences that will help her um, understand the kinds of decisions, the strategic and systematic decisions that she's going to make throughout her life to really help her advance her career. And uh, one of the first important examples of this is um, in her uh, trips uh, to Europe in, in the late uh, 1870s and the uh, early 1880s, she begins to learn about the kindergarten movement. And Froebel, who is one of the leaders, uh, the fathers of the kindergarten movement in Germany, um, and she is actually introduced and meets um, some of the major reformers in Europe in this movement, and she brings that knowledge and information and ideas that she learned uh, on that trip to Europe as she met these educators, and she brings those back to California and takes the initiative um, to contact in San Francisco women who are involved in the Golden Gate Kindergarten Association. And one of the most important um, friendships uh, that she develops in her early life 
in voluntary association politics is with Sarah B. Cooper, who was the uh, head of the Golden Gate Kindergarten Association in San Francisco. And that that's really the the first public involvement in voluntary associations that Phoebe gets involved in. She begins to donate money to that group, and uh, that money is used uh, to establish free kindergarten classes for the children of um, working class, poor, and immigrant parents in San Francisco, as well as to train women uh, in the professional occupation of becoming kindergarten teachers. There weren't many occupations uh, open to women and in the professions. And this was one of them. They, they were allowed to become kindergarten teachers. So the, the her adventures and travels in Europe are really very important in shaping her as an individual and um, helping her develop, really uh, focusing her attention on her personal interests. Um, and those interests really lead her into the world of volunteer association politics. And yet, as you explained, this is still a period of her life where she has to subordinate some of her interest and and, and uh, activism to her husband's career. Because you describe how, at, at this point, her husband, uh, George Hurst, is getting into politics as well. How mm-hmm. does that uh, affect her life? And, and, and how does that uh, shape her, uh, her, her involvement and her, ex- her experiences with power? For women who were trying to get power in the 19th century and beyond, uh, this was really a challenge. And in Phoebe Hurst's case, and I think this may be true of others as well, um, it was a constant balancing act. She had to satisfy her husband's needs and fulfill the traditional domestic duties um, as a faithful, dutiful wife on the one hand. But on the other, she also wanted to um, satisfy herself, make herself happy, um, pursue her own personal uh, concerns and interests. So in the decisions she made in her life as to what she would do and when and how, she constantly shifted back and forth to meet George's needs uh, while he was home, which wasn't very often. He would come back to visit his family every once in a while, but most of the time he was gone, uh, at the same time that she met her own needs. But George was always ever-present in her life, uh, establishing, as I mentioned earlier, uh, limits and constraints on her. Um, And, for example, um, on one trip to Europe, Um, Phoebe uh, was called back early from her trip by George because he was lonely (laughs) and wanted wanted her to come back. So she did. Um, But later on in her life and another uh, trip to Europe, Phoebe was older, a little bit more mature. Uh, She had more time away from George and she had developed herself into a more independent person. So uh, she used one of her assistants, Mary Kincaid, as a go-between to convince George to let her stay longer in Europe uh, when he asked to have her come back. And uh, because Kincaid was more skilled at the time uh, in Phoebe's life, had more education, uh, Kincaid was key in convincing George to allow Phoebe to stay longer in Europe. And uh, on this particular trip in the 1880s, that gave Phoebe more time really to gather the information and knowledge she needed to turn herself into a professional philanthropist, which really became her career. And yet when her husband was elected by the California legislature to the United States Senate, 
does she continue to do that or does she accompany him to Washington? Uh, she does indeed accompany him to Washington. He was appointed United States Senator from California in 1886 and then took his position the next year. Uh, but this, you know, Phoebe Hearst throughout her whole life um, tried to take advantage of as many opportunities that were presented to her. She just, she was not one to allow opportunities to pass her by. <laughs> so this is a, this is an early example of that. When they moved to Washington, D.C., uh, they move into uh, a home on New Hampshire Avenue Northwest in D.C. And by this point, Phoebe Hurst had begun to realize that she had an emerging interest in design and architecture that she inherited basically from her father. And that was uh, peaked further uh, later on in her life by uh, attending the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893. But by the time she gets to uh, Washington, D.C., she decides that she needs to find a project uh, that would help her uh, advance her husband's um, political career in Washington, D.C., uh, also help the Hearst as a family gain acceptance into social, political, and intellectual elite circles, but in addition, allow her to pursue her own interests, make herself happy. And she finally hits upon a project that could do that for her, and that is to remodel and renovate um, this house that the Hearst moved into in New Hampshire Avenue Northwest. And so she gets involved in this project by commissioning architect Harvey L. Page to do the remodel. Uh, and this is in 1889. And once uh, this project is completed, it's a project really that allows Phoebe Hearst to accomplish the goals and aims that she had. Um, uh, the press reported on this renovated project, and it was seen as a successful project. Um, then um, Phoebe Hearst, as a result of the remodel, began to hold social entertainments that would help advance her husband's political career and put the Hearst name out there and help them gain um, acceptance into elite circles in the nation's capital. And the social entertainments were hailed as great successes. Um, and at, all the while, Phoebe Hearst is balancing uh, her duties as a faithful wife um, to her husband and helping him advance his career through these social entertainments at the same time that she is satisfying herself by pursuing uh, projects in design and architecture. So she becomes uh, rather uh, very successful at what she was doing. And yet that period of her life comes to a, an abrupt end when her husband dies in 1891. And you go into some details to explaining what happens to her at that point, because it really is a, a pivotal point in her life. Her, her husband is dead and it, and, and it could have gone in, in a variety of different ways. How, what is her status when George Hurst dies and what, in what ways does that uh, change her circumstances and, and, and allow her to uh, redirect herself towards different goals? Okay. Um, First of all, I mean, virtually nobody, including Phoebe Hearst, was expecting George to pass away in late February of 1891. This really took Phoebe Hearst off guard. She was normally a very confident and optimistic woman, uh, and this shook her confidence. She really didn't know what to do. By this point, however, um, Phoebe Hearst's activities in the nation's capital had uh, developed a 
reputation, a good reputation for the Hearst, uh, including Phoebe Hearst as a social entertainer and uh, Mrs. Senator Hearst, as they called her, a very uh, distinguished, powerful woman. Uh, that was her image by the time George Hearst passed away. And once George Hearst passed away, um, in his will, he left control of his entire estate to Phoebe uh, Apperson Hearst. He did not leave one cent to his son, William Randolph Hearst. And part of the reason for that is um, William Randolph Hearst was a spendthrift. He, throughout his life, did not handle money very well. <laughs> uh, but Phoebe Hearst did. Uh, George Hearst trust his, trusted his wife's uh, ability to manage uh, and control his money. And she had demonstrated that on numerous trips to Europe. Um, so once uh, Phoebe Hearst um, was given control of the Hearst estate, um, she, know, she knew virtually nothing about uh, how to handle this estate. It was very large, lots of properties, intricate business dealings and contracts. So she's going to be tested very quickly, and she's going to have to learn very quickly about how to supervise and control this estate. So one of the first things that she does is um, she leaves Washington, D.C. To, to sort of go back to her rural roots. She goes to Sonoma, uh, California, and sets up Camp Sesame. She erects a tent and lives in this tent for a while, um, trying to figure out how she's going to adjust to being a 48-year-old widow with control of this entire estate. Uh, and she learns pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, in a couple of years, uh, she's, she's fortunate in that she has inherited uh, business managers that George had and also attorneys. So at first she relies on these men to help guide her. But it doesn't take her very long to begin to figure out how she can leverage uh, her wealth and other resources, her intellect, her, um, her time, her energy, her uh, effort, uh, to really bring herself power and to advance her philanthropic career. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon that a little bit. What does she uh, start to do? with this newfound independence in terms of her uh, her philanthropy? What causes does she focus on? And uh, to what degree does it, it does she have more freedom of action and how does she exercise it? Ah, uh, she's, um, she's always constrained by the limits placed upon women in terms of sex and class. But obviously, since she is a widow, widows uh, traditionally in the 19th century were given more freedom, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, one of the first things Phoebe Hearst does, the first step she takes uh, down her philanthropic path and, and trying to adjust to, to being a, a widow is um, she begins to learn from her attorneys uh, about what kinds of uh, power and control she has over the Hearst estate. Uh, and then um, understanding the freedom she has in terms of her supervision of the estate, the first small steps that she takes are she begins to uh, uh, gift money to women uh, friends and the daughters of women friends to allow them to realize their ambitions, their dreams. Um, and then uh, after she does that for a while, she um, 
starts to think about her personal interests. Now, Phoebe Hurst was an individual who did love children. As I mentioned previously, she, she her dream was to have six children, but since George wasn't around very much, that was <laughs> hard to do. <laughs> um, but um, she's interested in children, and she's has a passion for education. So um, as I briefly mentioned before, the first, the first really um, uh, public philanthropic projects she gets involved in are the Golden Gate Kindergarten Association. But after she makes a name for herself there, I mean, her name is put out in, in public in the press in San Francisco and the Bay Area and in California because of her involvement at, of this issue and with this issue. She then gets involved in trying to advance women in the medical field in San Francisco. Uh, she becomes the president of the um, Pacific Homeopathic Dispensary or Hospital in San Francisco. And this is a, an opportunity for her to begin to develop um, her skills and uh, becoming a powerful philanthropist. Um, she leverages her money and other resources to really force um, men at the Hanneman Medical College uh, in San Francisco um, to accept and work with female physicians at the homeopathic dispensary or hospital in San Francisco. Um, the male grads at the Hanneman College, once they graduated, they went to the, the Pacific uh, dispensary uh, to get advanced medical training and experience. So as president of the, of the hospital, uh, Hearst essentially put pressure on these male physicians to accept um, working with these female physicians at the dispensary uh, because she told them if uh, they didn't, essentially, that she would withdraw her financial support to the Pacific Homeopathic Dispensary. And if she did that, the dispensary would have to close because it was her money that kept it operating and staffed. I was especially struck by your description of her involvement with the University of California, especially when she becomes a regent, because you had that great scene in your book where she uh, assumes the position and you describe how she is now entering a realm in which it is, you know, it's it's a very different realm because she, she doesn't have quite that same degree of leverage. And it's 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 an organization that is dominated by men. She's the only woman on the board. And, and yet you, you describe how she does so much for the university at, at really a pivotal point in its history. Yes, I think I probably would say that this is uh, in terms of her philanthropic gifts and um, uh, her uh, involvement in uh, academic politics. This is arguably her most important legacy, what she does for the University of California at Berkeley. Um, she gets started, actually in 1885 is the first time she gives any uh, amount of money to the university. It's a small amount. Uh, she donates money to um, build a lab for the mining department. Uh, but uh, about six months after George Hearst uh, passes away, um, her uh, first donation, that's a larger gift, to the University of California to help and support women, attract women uh, to come to the university, is when in September of 1891, she donates money to the university to establish 
five $300 scholarships for women in perpetuity at the university. These uh, come to be known as the Phoebe Apperson Hearst Scholarships. They are still available at the university. So any women out there who are considering going to the university, do check them out. Um, uh, And then um, as early as 1894, Phoebe Hearst uh, clearly developed in her own mind uh, a comprehensive architectural plan that she decides to offer to the university. And the very first person she talks to about this comprehensive architectural plan is uh, Millicent Shin. Uh, And Millicent Shin is an 1880 University of California graduate. Um, She's the first woman to receive a doctorate at the university, and she becomes an author and an editor. And so Phoebe Apperson Hearst talks to Shin about her idea of, of presenting a comprehensive architectural plan to the university. And the plan really consisted of three parts. The first part was a uh, building the George Hearst Memorial Mining Building that she wanted wanted designed and constructed at the university uh, to honor the memory of her deceased husband. Um, the second building was later called Hearst Hall. Uh, and at the time that Phoebe Hearst um, came forth with this idea to build Hearst Hall, she made a strategic decision not to announce publicly uh, the role and function that she had in mind for this building. Uh, But down the road, she really wanted this building to be a building for women, a home away from home for women, a place where they could meet, gather, meet each other, develop their networks, and and really challenge the power of men on campus. Uh, Most women at UC were in a hostile environment. Most men did not want them there. And the only place that they could meet on campus at the time, before Hearst Hall was um, going to be built and constructed, Uh, was in a a corner of North Hall. Uh, They could eat their lunch. They were allowed to gather there. (laughs) That was the only place on campus. Uh, But then the third part of her her architectural um, plan was uh, to support and hold uh, an international architectural competition to um, have architects from all over the world, but particularly Western Europe, submit uh, designs for an ideal city of learning, an ideal university. And so once she talked to Militant Shin about uh, her plan, then it took a while um, for the university regents to discuss uh, and eventually accept and approve it. But this, this plan, which Phoebe Hurst was given the formal legal and political power to supervise from start to finish, uh, the regents uh, handed over to her that kind of power, really was going to place uh, the University of California on the map. It brought Phoebe Hurst uh, not only her position as the first female regent at the University of California, Berkeley, but also uh, really provided a worldwide reputation for Regent Hearst and the University of California, Berkeley. And it had a tremendous impact once it was completed on women at the university. It brought great benefits to uh, female students uh, who were inspired by uh, Hearst Hall. And uh, Hearst Hall at the time also included um, a women's gym. And so as a result of this gym being included in the construction, the design and construction, uh, women students on campus organized a petition to get the regents to hire the first female faculty member with an academic title and a salary. 
as a female medical examiner to examine um, female students so they could use the gym. And uh, her name was Dr. Mary uh, B. Ritter, who was hired as a female medical examiner by the UC Board of Regents, but she was also hired as a lecturer uh, in hygiene in the Department of Physical Culture. So as a result of uh, Regent Hearst's um, activities and her support, uh, female students were able to get the first female faculty member with an academic si- uh, title and a salary, albeit part-time and paid by Hearst. <laughs> so uh, Hearst's comprehensive architectural plan really had an uh, astounding impact on the university at large and particularly women's students. And it's really saying something that you regard that as her most lasting legacy because you described that it, it, it at this point in her life, she really has come into her own uh, as this uh, force for philanthropy and and civic activism, not just in terms of uh, what she's doing at the University of California, Berkeley, but also with her role at the with the Panama Pacific International Exposition, which is really a, a much larger forum, one in which she's interacting with some of the leading public figures of her time. Yes, Um after, after Phoebe Hearst's architectural uh, plan is completed, um, uh, she uh, eventually goes off to Europe, and she has an apartment uh, in Paris. She loved Paris uh, and France, and she stays there for a while, and then she comes back to the United States. She's called back to the United States because of uh, family uh, affairs, business affairs. She really does, by this point, become a competent businesswoman among many other uh, activities and roles. Uh, and she's also called back to the United States because William Randolph Hearst, her son, is struggling once again with financial problems. <laughs> um, he's always asking his mother for money. Um, and he eventually gets what he wants most of the time, but not always. <laughs> so she returns to the United States. And Phoebe Hearst, uh, as one of her friends says, um, is really almost addicted to um, volunteer association activities and politics. She she loves being active and involved in meaningful, purposeful activities. That throughout her life, this brings brings her meaning in her life and purpose. So she comes back to the United States, and she realizes because of her extended stay abroad, she has to resurrect her philanthropic career. She has to reinvigorate her career. She's got to remind people about her previous career activities and what she has accomplished in her life. So um, she finally, after being reluctant um, in a number of years, comes out uh, in 1911, just before the special election in California, granting women the right to vote. Um, She announces publicly she will um, support suffrage in California. And then in that same year, uh, she begins to really develop a a systematic plan to uh, get people to think about her and campaign for becoming the head of the Women's Board of the Panama Pacific International Exposition. And the way that she does that is by using social events at her Hacienda del Pozo de Verona, which is her uh, first large mansion that she uh, has designed and constructed in her life in the in the mid to late uh, 1890s. And at the Hacienda, she puts on these fabulous social events. They're very extravagant by this point in her life. 
Um, she entertains up to uh, 10,000 people uh, leading up to the Panama Pacific International Exposition, of which approximately 4,000 of them are involved in the exposition. So she's really making an effort to let people know that um, she wants to be active in the exposition and even beyond that, uh, to hold some kind of official position. And she's successful in this effort. She is um, appointed to the um, corporation that women who are involved in the exposition form. It's a business corporation. Um, She's brought in as a stockholder, and she is eventually elected uh, as the head of the Women's Board of the Exposition. And while she's the head of um, the Women's Board, um, she, her official title initially was as the honorary president. But Phoebe Hurst, um, from the, almost the start, needed to turn that honorary position into something that was more meaningful in her life. So the way in which she does that is to um, take a path through uh, involvement with the National uh, Young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA. And um, she decides to hold a conference in May of 1912 for the YWCA, which is really an effort uh, on the wise part Um, to make it known to Hearst that they wanted her to represent their national political interests at the Panama Pacific International Exposition. They wanted her to advance uh, their political agenda. And um, this conference at the Hacienda is very successful. And Hearst goes on to um, be appointed to um, the National Board, Executive Committee of the National YWCA Board, as a result of this conference. And she uses then the Y at the Panama Pacific International Exposition to establish the Travelers Aid Society in California and working with the Travelers Aid Society, which is a mixed volunteer association. It has men as well as women in it. She is able to advance the political agenda, uh, which was a moderate progressive reform agenda at the time of the YWCA. And in the process of all of that, she, um, using her uh, resources again to leverage uh, uh, power in in the uh, exposition, she is instrumental in getting the YWCA building uh, built at the Panama Pacific International Exposition. This exposition does not have uh, a women's building, which other expositions uh, in history had. Um, the YWCA building um, really uh, worked in that function, not only for women, but also for men. It it held a lot of different activities that both women and men attended at the, at the exposition. You've already alluded to uh, what she is involved with simultaneously, which is the suffrage movement. And I thought that your in, your uh, description of her role in it was a very interesting one because it gets to, you know, it, it really is the point at which, you know, her, her influence is the greatest and, and she could use it in a variety of different ways. And, and the choices she makes are, are, are really very interesting. Ones. They, they seem to be the ones that really kind of expose what you know, where she really is in terms of how she thinks power should be exercised, the ways in which uh, to to achieve uh, goals for women. How, what role does she play in the suffrage movement, both within California and nationally? 
Yes. Uh, Phoebe Hurst was raised by her parents who were members of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, which was a radical reform wing of uh, the Presbyterian Church. So she was interested in reform causes and suffrage is going to be one of them. But she's also raised by her parents to be a dignified, respectable woman, always to conduct herself, behave herself as a lady which she does throughout her entire life. So her first involvement with the suffrage movement actually uh, goes back to 1896 in the California suffrage campaign um, when she offers the largest cash donation to the campaign in California in that year. But she doesn't get involved in any of its activities. She just offers money. And then, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, she finally announces publicly in the 1911 California campaign that she backs suffrage. But she makes it quite clear that she does not support militant or radical suffragists because their aggressive confrontational methods, uh, techniques, uh, really make Phoebe Hurst uncomfortable. So she winds up really um, backing suffrage as a tool of reform rather than any kind of expression of radical politics. She winds up being a member of the moderate suffrage camp uh, by the early uh, 20th century. And she never does march in uh, Alice Paul's uh, suffrage parades. Uh, Alice Paul was um, the instigator of establishing the Congressional Union which was a organization that had one political goal only, and that was to get a federal amendment to the Constitution uh, for women, uh, women uh, to be given the right to vote. So Phoebe Hearst never marches in uh, an Alice Paul suffrage parade, but um, as a moderate in the suffrage camp, she does wind up uh, marching in a preparedness day parade in San Francisco in the summer uh, of 1916. And preparedness day parade um, backed Woodrow Wilson's um, position on preparing the United States for possible interest into uh, involvement in World War One, but also uh, to back uh, national defense initiatives that Wilson was supporting. So Phoebe Hearst marches in this parade, um, uh, uh, threats to her life and the life of others in this parade were made before the parade, but that didn't stop Phoebe Hearst from marching. And uh, one of the reasons she marched um, was to prove uh, to many Americans, some of whom criticized women for marching in these kinds of parades, but was to prove to Americans that women were fit. Uh, for citizenship rights, to have full citizenship rights, the same kind of rights that men had. And once again, she was quite successful in that effort. She marched from beginning to end in the parade without any uh, physical assistance, uh, riding in a car or leaning on anybody's arm or what have you. So she was instrumental along with other women um, in proving to Americans that women were fit for citizenship. But she, by this point, had also become a great uh, symbol to women and others in the United States um, as a representative of um, motherhood, of nationhood, of women's activism and reform efforts. So she was quite well known by this point. 
it's a shame that she passes away when she does so close to the uh, ratification of the 19th Amendment. Yes, she did see she was alive uh, for the House vote that passed on the 19th Amendment, but she passed away on April 13th of 1919, just before the Senate vote. So she didn't quite see uh, the completion of the vote um, or the ratification of the 19th Amendment. She passed away from the flu epidemic uh, that turned into pneumonia. And, um, you know, uh, by this point, uh, she was quite famous, uh, quite prominent. Um, She had some of the most powerful men in California as her honorary pallbearers uh, for her funeral. Uh, And uh, condolences just poured in from all over the world, uh, as well as the United States. Uh, You know, her her legacy, I mean, many of the projects that she uh, got involved in uh, throughout her life are still up and running. Um, The Golden Gate Kindergarten Association, which is now called the um, Phoebe A. Hearst uh, Pre-Learning Center, uh, is still operating in San Francisco um, uh, it's certainly the University of California uh, is still operating and women are still reaping the benefits from her philanthropy and activism there. Uh, the YWCA uh, has a, an office located right across the street from the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, she was also the co-founder of the National Congress of Mothers, which is now called the Parents and Teacher Association, the PTA. So, um Phoebe Hurst still lives. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, Yes, I am involved in a project to discover the meaning of uh, uh, the phrase sexual equality uh, from women's point of view, beginning in uh, the period of the American Revolution up to 1920. I'd like to find out what women really meant by that. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. Uh, How far along are you? Uh, I'm, uh, beginning to write the first chapter, actually. Congratulations. Yeah, most of the, most of the research done, and, uh, I hope this summer to begin writing. Well, I hope that we can have you back when the project's completed and published. Oh, wow, that'd be fabulous. Thank (laughs) you so much. (laughs) Well, Alexander Nicholas, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too, Mark. Thanks so much.